morning, I invite you to draw your sword and turn to Psalm 51. I want to read in your hearing all 19 verses as today we continue our 10-part study of the life of David. This morning, I want to preach to you a sermon that's entitled, A Private Affair for All to Read. A Private Affair for All to Read. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Psalm 51, I'll begin at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression, my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God. The God who saves me in my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and to the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. By the time David was 50 years of age, he was a success by anyone's standard. As a teenager, he had decisively defeated the giant named Goliath with a sling and a stone. At the age of 30, he was installed as Israel's king. For the first 20 years of David's rule and reign, he demonstrated spectacular leadership. For those first two decades, he never tasted defeat on the battlefield. No, not once. Under David's reign, the treasury of Israel exploded. The territory of the nation encompassed more than 60,000 square miles. The popular public opinion of David was through the roof. By the time David was 50 years of age, he was a success. I can imagine that being a success can be exhilarating. I also know it can be quite dangerous. The most dangerous times in your life are not tough times. No, tough times tend to great people that are dependent on the Lord. The most dangerous times in your life will occur when everything is going your way. You and I don't fall asleep 
when we're in the ocean surrounded by sharks. But we just might drift off to sleep when we're in the safe, sandy confines of a sun-drenched beach. When life is going your way, that's when you have to be careful. It's when you just landed the promotion at work. It's when the financial investment just made a huge payoff. It's when you made the touchdown-saving tackle on Friday night to secure the victory. It's just when you were named prom queen. It's when you just got married. It's after you just had your first child. It's soon after you just welcomed home your first grandchild. When life is going your way, when everything is well, that's when you have to watch out. Success can breed comfort, and comfort can give way to complacency. That's exactly what happened to David. Elsewhere, the scripture tells us in the spring of the year when most kings go to war, David stayed back in Jerusalem. Now, David should have been in the battlefield. He should have been with the other soldiers. But why did he stay in the capital city? Well, he's David. He's never tasted defeat on the battlefield, so why is it going to start now? Everything he touches seems to turn to gold. So he should have been with the soldiers. But instead, he was in the palace. On one given evening, he took a stroll on his palatial rooftop. It was a flat balcony that extended beyond his sleeping quarters. From that vantage point, the king could see just about all of Jerusalem. But on this night, David wasn't focused on all of Jerusalem. He was looking in one specific direction. The Bible says that David saw a woman taking a bath, and she was very beautiful. I've never known the Bible to exaggerate. So when it says that this woman was very beautiful, I take that to mean she was a knockout. She must have registered a 12 on a scale of 1 to 10. It's about that time that I think that in David's mind, he began hearing that 1977 Commodore hit. She's a brick house. Mighty, mighty, letting it all hang out. She's a brick house. David began to watch how the water cascaded down her voluptuous curbs. David took note of her silky, soft skin. And in his mind, he began to race with the possibilities. Oh, how I wish the king just would have looked away and turned away and walked away. But instead, he called for a servant and asked the identity of this woman. The servant took one look at that woman and he said, that's Bathsheba. She's the daughter of Eliam. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. In the nicest way possible, what the servant was saying to the king was, David, you need to pump the brakes. Stop while you can. This is not an object just to be gawked at. She's a person. She is a daughter. She's not just a daughter, but she's a wife. She's not just anybody's wife. But she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah was one of David's mighty men. On numerous occasions, Uriah had laid his life on the line for the king. 
what the servant is saying to his master. This woman, she's off limits to you. But David threw caution to the wind. He burned with passion. He called for this woman named Bathsheba. She came to the palace and they had a night of erotic pleasure. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said that at the moment of our sin, God becomes very unreal to us. It's not that the devil wants us to hate God. He just wants us to momentarily forget about God. Bonhoeffer went on to write that it's the inclination towards temptation that is both sudden and fierce. Do you know temptation like that? Maybe your temptation is just like David's. Maybe your temptation is something totally different than David. But regardless, do you know what it is for temptation to come at you out of left field, give you a sucker punch that you never saw coming? Do you know what it is for temptation to be both sudden and fierce? It's not that the devil wants you to hate God. No, he knows your testimony. For you would stand up and say, I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the devil would say, that's all right. Don't hate God, but just for the moment, forget about God. The devil wants you, wants me, just to live in the moment and momentarily act as if God doesn't exist. It was Chuck Swindoll who said, it's been my observation that the devil never tips his hand in temptation. He only shows the fun, the excitement, the beauty, the ecstasy, but never the consequences. The devil never tells the heavy drinker, I wouldn't do that if I were you. I mean, the path that you're on, it's going to cost you everything. Your addiction to the bottle It's going to cost your marriage and your family, your job, and all your finances. Oh, the devil never says anything like that. The devil never says to the thief, I wouldn't steal that if I were you. If you steal that, you just might get caught. If you get caught stealing that, it may land you behind bars. If you go to jail for stealing that, you'll have to staple that to every job description you ever submit. Oh, the devil never says anything like that to the thief. The devil never says to the would-be adulterer, I wouldn't go behind that hotel room if I were you. Oh, on the opposite side of that door, yeah, there's some fun and excitement. It's, It's fleeting, but on the other side of that hotel door is a broken marriage, an unwanted pregnancy, a sexually transmitted disease, or at the very least, a heap of shame and guilt that will dog you For countless days, the devil never says anything like that. When the dirty deed is done and once penalty for sin comes due, the devil is nowhere to be found. That's what David experienced. As he was thumbing through the mail, he found a letter marked urgent. He ripped it open and the letter read something like this. Dear David, I'm pregnant. Sincerely, B. A cold sweat came across his brow. The king came to the conclusion, I've got to think up a cover-up. So he thought to himself, I'll just get Uriah to come in from the battlefield. He can spend a night with his wife. And then once Bathsheba begins to show, everybody can uh, count to nine months. And they can remember back to the night that Uriah came home. And that must mean that he is the father of the baby. 
Sounds like a good plan, doesn't it? Except for your fact that Uriah was a better soldier. Uh, Uriah came into the palace hall. David greeted him with small talk. How's it going? How's the war? How's the morale of the troops? Eventually in the conversation, David just looked at the soldier and said to Uriah, I want you to go home and wash your feet. Now friends, we don't know everything. In most days, we don't know a lot. But one thing we all do know is that nobody gets pregnant by washing somebody's feet. That's not how it happens. And yet if you study a little bit deeper, you realize that King David is giving a euphemism. For that phrase, wash your feet, simply meant go home and enjoy supper, sex, and a shower. Whatever the king was putting down, Uriah was picking up. He knew exactly what his king was saying. And his response verifies. For Uriah said to his king, O king, I appreciate the offer that you've given unto me. But I cannot do this, for the ark of God is in the battlefield. All the soldiers are waging war for Israel's sake. Don't they have wives they would love to come home to and enjoy their embrace? I cannot do the thing you have asked until the battle is over. Oh, Uriah was a good soldier. The king said, all right, just stay here for a day or two. The next day, the king threw Uriah a party. There were only two people at the party, David and Uriah. The goal was to get Uriah sloppy drunk, hoping that in that inebriated condition, he would stumble and stagger down the streets and go into his house and spend the night with his wife Bathsheba. King David just simply needed for Uriah to go home for an evening. He didn't care what happened once he got home. He just needed to get him under the roof. That makes sense, doesn't it? After all, David lives before the days of a paternity test. David lives before the time period of late afternoon talk shows where uh, the father is, 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 is trying to be determined to the hissing and booing of the collective crowd. And so this seems like a great idea. All David has to do is to get Uriah in that drunken condition to go down to his house and enter his front door. The king sent Uriah out of the palace. David thought to himself, all's well that ends well. He went into his sleeping quarters and had a good night rest. The next morning, David woke up. He opened the front door of the palace to reach down and get the Jerusalem Street Journal. And all of a sudden, he looked down on the welcome mat and there was Uriah. He was sleeping on the mat. Never made it off the front porch of the palace. By now, David is fit to be tied. He is not going to be outwitted by that warrior. So he goes to his study. And he pens a letter. He addresses it to the commander in the battlefield, General Joab. It simply reads, General Joab, put Uriah in the front of the line where the fighting is fiercest. When the enemy attacks, withdraw so that Uriah will be struck dead. David signed the letter. David sealed the letter. This is David we're talking about. The Bible says that David is a man after God's own heart. Yet David's heart had become cold, calculated, and calloused. King David sealed the envelope, handed it to Uriah, and Uriah carried his own 
death wish to General Joab. And the general was obedient to his king. And on that day, Uriah died. For the first time in the sacred script, we read these words about David. This thing David had done greatly displeased the Lord. A few days later, the prophet named Nathan gained an audience with his king. It's not uncommon for Nathan to come see King David. Normally, Nathan would give a good word from God. So when the king looked up and saw that it was the prophet Nathan, he was overjoyed. Nathan said to his king, I've got a story that I really need to tell you. And David said, swell. I love a well-spun story. He pulled up a chair and sat down. And Nathan the prophet said, there was a rich man who late in the afternoon had a traveler come by his house. He welcomed him into his home. It got time for dinner, and in good Near Eastern hospitality, he offered the man a meal. And instead of the rich man slaughtering one of his many sheep from his large flock, the rich man went next door to his poor neighbor, and he stole the only lamb that that poor neighbor had. He slaughtered it and prepared it. That as a meal for the traveling guest. By now, David is on the edge of his seat. He is fuming. You can see steam coming out of his ears. He interrupts Nathan and he simply says, the man who did this deserves to die. He'll pay back four times the amount. And all the while, King David did not feel the proverbial noose being placed around his neck until that noose was cinched with a four-word phrase from the lips of the prophet. Nathan, looking at his king, said, you are the man. You are the man. You are that man. With those words, King David wilted like a flower underneath the heat of the Palestinian sun. And Nathan continued, King, you took Bathsheba as your wife. You had Uriah, her husband, killed. The thing you had done greatly displeased the Lord. The sword will never leave your house. What you did, you did in secret. But God will give your wives to one who is close to you, and that one close to you will do what you did in broad daylight. And friend, if you know the rest of David's story, you know that everything Nathan said will come true. David's house will be racketed with deception and lust and lying and incest and rape and adultery and murder. And all of it can be traced back to his selfish escapade with Bathsheba. After Nathan finished his indictment of David, David simply said, I have sinned. I think it was just moments later that David then retreated into his study 
gripped with remorse, grief, and repentance. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he penned Psalm 51, the psalm that I read in your hearing just moments ago. For the remainder of our time, I want us to walk through Psalm 51. What David did with his sin, you would do well to do with your sin today. It has well been documented that David was a man after God's own heart. But don't ever interpret that as perfection. David was not perfect and neither are we. And what David did with his sin, you and I ought to do with our sin. First and foremost, David, he placed his guilt before God, verses 1 to 6. Secondly, David pleaded with God for cleansing, verses 7 to 12. And third, David promised a life of transformation, verses 13 to 19. First, David placed his guilt before God. He begins in verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your unfailing love. That word mercy is literally the word that we would render grace. Grace is not just a noun, it's also a verb. He's saying, God, I need you to grace me. Grace me not because I'm good, because I'm not. Grace me because you are great. I want you to have mercy upon me according to your unfailing love. Don't give me what I deserve. Don't give me what I've earned. Don't give me what my sin comes due. I want you to be gracious unto me. Please have mercy upon me because you are good blot out my transgression. The word blot out is a word picture of cleaning a dirty bowl from the inside out. David understands that sin is an inside job. Sin does not affect you from the outside in. Sin affects you from the inside out. That is so true. Let me say it again. Sin does not affect you from the outside in. Sin affects you from the inside out. David says, I need you to blot out my transgressions. I am so dirty on the inside. I need for you to clean me out as if I'm a dirty bowl for I have transgressed your law. I also need for you, O oh God, to wash away all my iniquity. The word wash away is a vivid term. It literally means to pummel. It's the idea of beating and cleaning dirty, soiled garments. Don't miss what David is saying. David is saying, I have made a mess of my life. I've made a royal mess of things. I have soiled my soul. I have soiled my garments, spiritually speaking. I have messed up thoroughly, and I cannot get that foul stench out of my spirit. I, I cannot make myself clean. I need for you to wash away all of the dirt and all the foul stench of, of my iniquity. The word iniquity means twistedness. That word iniquity, which David uses a couple of times in Psalm 51, is a word that conveys the idea of a servant carrying a load of bricks. And those bricks are so cumbersome, they are so heavy, the servant is bent over or twisted under the heavy load of the bricks. David says, that's me. I am so twisted. I am so bent over under the heavy load of my shame and my guilt that there's no way I can offload it. There's no way I can lighten my load. I need for you to do it. Oh God, wash away my iniquity. Against you and you only have I sinned. David says, and done what is evil in your sight, 
It's here where you may want to push the pause button. Uh, David, I think that you sinned against Bathsheba. I'm quite certain you sinned against Uriah. Yet you say, against you, O God, and you only have I sinned. See, David understands something that we may have forgotten. David knows that the horizontal relationships are all connected to the vertical relationship. That when I sin against you, I'm sinning against God. That when you sin against me, you're sinning against God. When we sin against each other, it's not just each other that we hurt. We are sinning against God Almighty. David is not denying that he sinned against Bathsheba. He's not refuting that he sinned against Uriah. But what he is saying is that ultimately all of his sinful action, it was an affront against a very holy God. Against you and you only have I sinned. And I've done what is evil in your sight. I want you to notice that David does not play the blame game. And neither should you. David doesn't say, you know, it's really not my fault. He doesn't say to God, God, I'm really not as bad as other kings. Have you seen what the other kings are doing and who they're doing it with on Friday night? Have you taken a peek at the Amorite king or the, or the Moabite king? Have you seen what they're doing? No, David doesn't play the blame game. He offers no excuses. There's absolutely zero pride in David's spirit. He is not arrogant. He is humble. He goes before God. He places his guilt before God, and he owns it. He says, God, I have royally messed up. Friend, don't play the blame game. Don't blame somebody else for your sin. It is not the fault of your upbringing. It is not because of your culture. It's not the fault of your so-called friends. What you did, you've got to own. It is yours. It's nobody else's fault. David could have said, you know what? It's not my fault. It's Bathsheba's fault. I mean, she's taking a bath in a very public way. Was this some type of setup? What's she doing? Just trying to allure me into her clutches? No, he doesn't blame Bathsheba. He doesn't blame any other uh, person. He says, God, this is all me. I own it. And church... When it comes to our personal sin, you and I have to own it. It's nobody else's fault but our own. And David placed his guilt before God. Secondly, he pleaded for cleansing. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Hyssop was a small bushy plant that was used like a paintbrush. Whenever a priest would offer a sacrifice, the blood of that precious lamb would be gathered in a bowl. And the priest would then take a hyssop plant. He would dip it into that bowl of blood, and then he would sprinkle it on the altar of God. On at least one occasion every year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would offer a sacrifice he would gather the blood of the precious lamb in a bowl. He would take a hyssop plant, and yes, he would anoint and uh, uh, sprinkle the altar, but he would also take that blood and sprinkle it upon the people of God. Because God's people have always known that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. God's people have also always known that we must be covered 
by the blood of the lamb. What is David asking for? David is asking for God to be both high priest and sacrifice. He's saying, I need for you to cleanse me with hyssop. I need for you to be my high priest. But I also need for you to be the one to supply the blood, to supply the perfect lamb of God. I need for you to be high priest, and I need for you to be sacrifice. In other words, what David is asking for, he's asking for Jesus. Now, Jesus will come a thousand years after David, but David looks forward and he says, God, in order for you to really fix me, I need for you to be my high priest. I need for you to be the precious lamb of God. And in Jesus Christ, that's what we have. For the hymn writer is exactly right. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fountain, no. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. David is pleading for cleansing, and that cleansing can only come by God, who is high priest and sacrifice. Only the blood of Jesus can make us clean. Have you ever have you ever thought about your sin and it kind of shocks you? Kind of confuses you? You do something and yes, you, you kind of know that it's an inside job, but still you ask yourself, where did that come from? That doesn't sound like me. That's not something I would normally do. You walk away scratching your head, confused about your sin. I'm sure that David was confused. Let me try to illustrate what I mean. I mean, this is the same man who years earlier had walked in the valley, seen Goliath, and said by God's power, I'll slay him. It's the same man who walked on his rooftop, saw Bathsheba, And in disobedience to God's word, he said, I'll sleep with her. How is that possible? That out of the same man, you have loyal love that he demonstrates to Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And then out of the same man, you get lustful love that he demonstrates towards Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's only two chapters different in the sacred script from chapter 9 to chapter 11. In one moment, he gives loyal love to Mephibosheth. In the next moment, he gives lustful love towards Bathsheba. How do you explain that? How do you explain that out of the same person, King David, there could be such nobility and nastiness that in one moment, he can be sensitive. In the next moment, he can be sensual. One day, he can be good the next day he can be gross how do you explain that out of David's life let me ask you another question how do you explain it out of your life because certainly you like David have moments when you are good and you have moments so let's just be real this morning they're gross there are moments when you are noble There are other moments that if everybody knew everybody else's junk, you would conclude that's nasty. How do you you justify that? How do you explain that? One moment you could be so sensitive, and the next moment, so sensual. I hear what Alistair Begg 
wrote. When he talked about the confusion of sin and the reality when sin hits us. Alistair Begg said that sin usually occurs in your life and mine when desire and temptation and opportunity collide. You can usually handle two out of three, but it's very hard to handle three out of three. You can handle it when there's desire and temptation, but no opportunity. You can handle it when there's desire and opportunity, but it's really not a temptation. You can handle it when there's temptation and opportunity, but it's not a desire for you. Let me try to illustrate. It's the desire to feel significant. It's the temptation to slander somebody else's reputation all in the hopes of making yourself feel more significant. And the opportunity is that all the girls are getting together, going to the mall to shop, and then go to dinner and a movie. And it's there at the dinner that the opportunity provides itself for you to slander somebody who's not there in the group. And all the while, while you slander them, it makes you feel more significant. Now, you're looking at me like you don't know what in the world I'm talking about, and I know, exa- I know you know exactly what I'm talking about. Let me give you another illustration. It's the desire for pleasure. It's the temptation of lust. It's the opportunity that you're at home by yourself in front of your computer and the image is only two clicks away. Desire plus temptation plus opportunity. You can usually handle two out of the three. But when all three happen simultaneously, watch out. Watch out because sin is crouching at your door. So that you who just yesterday were so noble, in this moment, you can just be downright nasty. Can you imagine if David had the internet? Can you imagine if King David had an iPhone? What would David do with an iPhone connected to the internet? What would David do? Let me ask it another way. What do you do? Because I think that King David does what many of you do with the iPhone connected to the internet. This morning, let's just be real. Pornography is the crack cocaine of the church. It is highly addictive. It is completely destructive. It is the crack cocaine of the church. All the surveys, they have the same conclusions. Every survey says that one out of every two self-professing religious men And one out of every five self-professing religious women and four out of every ten pastors have viewed pornography at some point this month. And friend, I think that the reality is worse than the stats because the statistics have an assumption that church people tell you the truth. And I don't think church people always tell you the truth especially when it comes to this topic. So 
if they are concluding based on what church people have told them that one out of every two self-professing religious men, one out of every five self-professing religious women, four out of ten pastors are caught in the web of pornography, I'm standing to tell you this morning the reality is worse than the statistics. And friend, there may be more than a few of you listening to my voice today And you know what it is to be caught in the web of pornography. You know what it is to be ensnared. Some of you can't go a day without looking at a vile image, maybe even a few times a day. And if if you're there, whether you think it's just an occasional glance that you have under control, Or whether you agree with me that yes, it's a problem and pastor, I need some help. Let me tell you this morning, regardless of where you find yourself on the spectrum, number one, I want to tell you, you are not alone. The devil wants you to think that you're alone, but you're not. You are not alone. And number two, I want you to know there is help. There is help and healing from every addiction, including this one. So I want you to know, you're not alone and there is help. What would David say to you? David would declare what he declared unto the Lord. He asked God, create within me a pure heart, O God. He asked for God to do something in his life that he could not do for himself. He uses the word create. That word create is the Hebrew word bara. We would spell it in English B-A-R-A. Bara always and only has God as its subject. Every time in the Hebrew Old Testament, when you find the word bara, God is always a subject. There are other verbs that communicate how humans can build and create and make, but only God can bara. The first time it's found is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is God's verb. It's God's word. And here, David says... I need for you to barrow within me a brand new heart. I need for you to do something that I cannot do for myself. If I could go to a priest, if I could go to a rabbi, if I could give you more money, God, if if I could build you another cathedral, if I could conquer another kingdom, I would do it. But I got a problem that none of those things can fix. David wasn't just asking for pardon. He was asking for purity. Maybe some of us need to ask for the same thing this morning. Not just pardon, but purity. Create within me a pure heart, O God. The heart of our problem is the problem of our heart. It's an inside job. It's not external. It's internal. Jeremiah said, the heart is a deceitful place. It's beyond all cure. And we need for God to come in and to fix us. Because we've tried to fix ourselves and we failed. So God, we need for you to do something that only you can do. Oh friend, I've told you before and I'll tell you many times still. There's some things in this world that money can't fix. There's some things in this world that the military cannot fix. There's some things in this world that doctors cannot fix. There's some things in this world that lawyers cannot fix. Some things in this world that coaches cannot fix. Some things in this world that Congress cannot fix. Some things in this world that teachers cannot fix. Some things in this world that parents cannot fix. Some things in this world your charisma cannot fix. There are some things in this world that you cannot fix. But there ain't nothing that Jesus can't fix. I know that's bad grammar, but it's great theology. Hashtag ain't nothing. There ain't nothing that Jesus can't fix 
And David is asking for God to fix it because I can't fix myself. Do you know where David is? Do you know how he's feeling? Some of y'all thought you were coming to church today. I get it. It looks like church. We got a steeple on top of the building. It smells like church. You look around and people look churchy. You thought you were coming to church. You're not. You came to an OR, an operating room. And what you need more than anything else is that you need for Jesus, the great physician, to do cardio surgery on your spiritual life. You don't just need a bypass. You need a heart transplant. You need for God to create within you a pure heart because the one that you have is dirty and tainted and clogged. You need for Jesus to come and put you on the operating table and you need for King Jesus, the great physician of our soul, to come and to minister to us. And the good news I have for you this morning is that the doctor is in the building, that the doctor is here. And King Jesus, who is the great physician, he has a perfect bedside manner and he's never lost a patient not on the operating table. Jesus is the only doctor that I know who has a 100% surgical success rate. So Jesus always fixes every person who comes to him in faith, every person who's broken and contrite. Jesus comes and he fixes it. That's what David is asking for. God, I need you to fix it. So he pleads with God for cleansing. He says, oh God, please do not take your spirit from me like you did Saul. And restore the joy of salvation. David knew that because of his sin, he did not lose salvation. But he did lose the joy of salvation. There are some people listening here this morning. And you are caught in sin, whatever that sin may be. It may be like David's. It may be something totally different than David's. But you're ensnared and entrapped in the sin that so easily entangles you. And friend, you haven't lost your salvation, but you just might have lost the joy of salvation. You know what sin does? Sin soils the spirit and sin seals the lips. You can always tell somebody that's under conviction. You can always tell somebody who um, just feels the weight of disobedience. Why? Because they don't talk about Jesus as much as they used to. They don't worship as freely as once they did. They feel dirty. They, they don't look you in the eye. They look down because they know their soul has been tainted and their lips have been sealed. That's what sin does. And David says, please, will you restore the joy of salvation in my life again? Because when you do that, I promise a life of transformation. He not only placed his guilt before God and secondly pleaded with God for cleansing, but third and finally, he promised a life of transformation. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Sinners will be brought back to you. You open my mouth 
and praise will be on my lips. Did you hear that? My life has been transformed, David says. I've been forgiven of my sin. And the, the way you know I've been forgiven of my sin is because it affects my walk and my worship and my witness. It's because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach transgressors how to turn back to Christ. And when I get into a worship service, you're not going to be able to shut me up because God is going to loose my lips. God is going to open my mouth. And what's in my mouth is going to be praise. And so sometimes we ask people, why are you so happy? Why are you so excited? Why do you have so much joy? And the answer simply should be, well, if you knew who I was, if you knew what I'd done, if you knew where I've been, if you know how good God has been to me, then you wouldn't ask me, why am I so excited? Because you would know that one who is dead is now alive again. One who is dirty is now clean. And so now my soul has been washed clean and my lips have been loose. David says, I promise a life of transformation. Because the goal of God is not just to inform your mind. The goal of God is not even just to inspire your spirit. But God's goal in your life is to transform you from the inside out. God wants you to be completely transformed. And David, looking forward, simply says, then there will be righteous sacrifices. David is longing for the day when God will give a righteous sacrifice. What David is looking forward to in a thousand years, you and I celebrate in worship because it took place 2,000 years ago. Because Jesus, the God-man, stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. He came and stumbled and staggered through the streets of Jerusalem with a crossbeam on his back. He climbed up Calvary's hill. They stretched him wide. They raised him high. In the third decade of the first century, God Almighty poured an eternity's worth of condemnation upon Jesus in a few-hour window so that Jesus literally took your condemnation for you. Jesus literally absorbed your hell so he could give you his heaven. The righteous one was declared unrighteous so that we who are unrighteous may be deemed righteous in the sight of God. The innocent one became guilty so that we who are guilty may be declared innocent in God's sight. There's a sweet swap of salvation that takes place at that skull-shaped hill called Golgotha where we give Jesus our sin. He gives us his righteousness. What David is longing for takes place 2,000 years ago when Jesus came and he died on a criminal's cross. They took his dead body, placed him into a borrowed grave, and on the third day Jesus got up. On the third day, Jesus got up. Don't let that just roll off my lips and roll into your ears. I'm here to tell you that the righteous sacrifice of God has been offered, and Jesus died for your sins and mine. And on the third day, Jesus got up out of the grave. So what does David learn from Psalm 51? It's true that he placed his guilt before God. He didn't make excuses and neither should you. He owned his sin. He pleaded with God for cleansing. Cleanse me and I will be clean. Create within me a pure heart. 
restore joy in my salvation. And God did it. And he promised a life of transformation. My life will be changed, David says. You know, David learned, if I could sum it up in one statement, David learned that there is no sin too gross for God's grace. That's true. That's true for David. It's true for you. It's true for me. No sin too gross for God's grace. We heard the testimony already. There is a fountain and it's filled with blood and it's drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood. They lose all of their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all of my sins away. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all of my sins away. David says, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Let me say the same thing in a different way. If breaking God's heart breaks your heart, you just might have a healthy heart. If you breaking God's heart breaks your heart, then you just might have a healthy heart. But let me also say it this way. If you breaking God's heart leaves you immoved, leaves you undone, leaves you with no response, then friend, you may have a widow maker and you don't even know it. Spiritually speaking, because a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. So if by you breaking God's heart breaks your heart, that just might reveal that you have a healthy spiritual heart. This morning, I call for all the broken and contrite to come and find grace that's needed in your time of need. If you're broken over your sin, if you're contrite, then you come. The altar's open. Maybe you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus as Savior. Today can be the day when he gives you a brand new heart. He does something that only he can do. He fixes you. And maybe you need for King Jesus to be the Savior of your soul. But maybe, maybe you are saved, but you don't have any joy. You are saved, but your lips have been sealed. You are saved, but there's something dirty inside of you today. I want you to come, broken and contrite, because there's no sin too gross for the grace of God. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. And Father, we pray that our hearts are open, that the altar is full, and that people come needing Christ to do in their lives what only he can do. Lord Jesus, the word shows us not how we ought to live, but it shows us how we actually live. So help us this day to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.